Gotham City, like any other large metropolis, abounds in girls of all shapes and sizes. Debutantes, nurses, stenographers, and librarians. Gotham City Library, Miss Gordon speaking. Lopez hair removal, this is Jose. Holy transformation. One minute, plain Barbara Gordon, librarian and Commissioner Gordon's daughter. And the next minute, something new has been added. Batgirl, modeled after her idol, Batman. Holy apparition! No, Boy Wonder, I'm Batgirl. You are no longer alone, Cape Crusader. It took me three years to track down the Jade Gato, and three more to figure out how to steal it. Funny, it only took me ten minutes to figure out how to snatch it back. No matter how you do it, crime doesn't pay girls. I'm your host, Stella, and this is Batgirl to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast, a very special episode 22 for June MMXI. Batgirl to Oracle is brought to you by MileHighComics.com, your new and collectible comic book store. Mile High Comics has an inventory of over 5 million comics from the gold, silver, bronze, and modern age, and over 100,000 trade paperbacks. An example of the prices you may encounter are Batgirl Year One Number 1 in fine condition for $2.60 and near mint for $2.75. If you're not into the vintage stock, Mile High Comics also has a subscription service called the New Issue Comics Express, offering a discounted price for comics ready to hit the shelves. I can't really offer you an example as I really have no idea what is going to happen in September. But since DC is drawing the line at 2.99, I can only hope that Batgirl number 1 and Birds of Prey number 1 that are supposed to be coming out in September will both be $2.69. So if you're looking for vintage back issues or a great modern subscription service, be sure to check out Maya High Comics. Well, many of you have heard me say on so many occasions that Batgirl Year One is perhaps my favorite Bab story, and I frankly think it to be the the best miniseries ever written, and I often offer it as the best jumping on point for any new reader. But, you know, what would Batgirl Year One be without its writers? And it is my deepest pleasure to introduce to you the two gentlemen who brought us this lovely work, my heroes, my idols. Mr. Chuck Dixon and Mr. Scott Beatty. Oh boy! <laughs> <laughs> was that too much? Was that too much? There, 
Yeah. So welcome. Thank let me, you. Let me open a window for my ego. Oh wow. Yeah. <laughs> Need some space. Um, so yeah, welcome. Thank you so much uh, for agreeing to come on to the show. Sure. Thanks for having us. So I just want to start off, I guess, with the um, your history in the business, uh, in writing in general, and then comics, and then I thought we could obviously get right into Batgirl Year One. So whoever wants to jump on first on that point. Uh, I'll take lead. Uh, I've been scripting comics for about 25 years and uh, written thousands of comic books. Uh, Batman, Punisher, Conan, The Simpsons. Um, currently working on G.I. Joe for IDW. Um, you know, that's what I do. It's the only thing I can do well. <laughs> but that's not true. <laughs> Chuck has other skills. <laughs> well, let's hear about yours. Um, well, um, I've been doing this, this business, um, comic scripting about, uh, I, I hate to say it, about half the time that Chuck has. And that's uh, not for lack of trying. Um, uh, for being a couple years younger, I would say also. <laughs> but uh, yeah. uh, I, I've been writing comics with uh, um, DC Comics, uh, Cross Gen Comics. Uh, I did uh, Dynamite is probably my most recent publisher. I, I wrote some books for Dorling Kindersley, the uh, various ultimate guides for DC Comics characters, and for Quirk Publishing, the, the Batman Handbook, the official guidebook to uh, how to be Batman, minus having. Uh, a slush fund of oh, a billion gosh. dollars. <laughs> and uh, I owe a lot of my uh, work in the business to uh, to Chuck. Um, Chuck uh, offered me the opportunity to work with him on various projects, and uh, that really helped get a foot in the door for me at, at D.C. And uh, uh, friendship grew out of it, and, uh, you know, he's you know a good friend and a, a great collaborator, and, uh, you know, we have fun together. Yeah, we clicked, and you were persistent. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, you know, people come. To, I mean, you, you, I'm sure Scott's had this happen too. People come and they go, "Can you give me advice on how to break in?" And you know, my proviso was just, "I'll help you break in, but you have to, you have to listen to every word I say and take me seriously." You know, even if you laugh at me behind my back, you know, act like you're listening. And, and uh, I, you know, and I took the advice to heart. I mean, I've, I've always regarded Chuck as kind of my, uh, you know, I'm I was his Padawan learner to his, uh, <laughs> his Jedi Knight, and uh, you know. <laughs> We wore the robes, and uh, you know. I, <laughs> oh gosh! I, uh, no, I. But you know, I, I came from a writing background, and I had not had any experience writing comic books. And Chuck had copious experience, and and Chuck kind of you know set the ground rules and sort of explained a lot of things to me that, you know, coming into comics with a, a big, a big idea of, of how to do it, and then you know sort of getting the, uh, really the realistic approach to, to writing comics. I think one of the best things that Chuck ever said to me was, "You get paid by the page, not the word." <laughs> and uh, having you know grown up in a business where you know pages from Alan Moore were kind of thrown out on the internet and and reprinted copiously in in magazines, you know I thought that was the model. And you know I, I, my first comic script had you know a twelve panel page. <laughs> you know I had to learn some hard lessons quickly, and thankfully I had a great uh, uh, mentor and friend to show me the ropes. Well, you know, it, you know you, Scott had all the chops, uh, you know. And, and there's like a gauge you use in the business when you're looking at a writer or you're looking at an artist and you go, well, another 100 pages, this guy will be good. Another 25 pages, this guy will be good. Um, Scott was good, like, you know, out of the gate, you know, and he just needed a little bit of, you know, formal education in comics. But, uh, you know, 
I considered him an equal right from the get-go. Uh, and, and we had a terrific time working, and our, our, our varying skills in comics, I think, really complemented one another uh, to the point where, you know, we, I look at our collaborations and I really can't see, even though at the one time I knew where, where I begin and he leaves off or vice versa. Yeah, I have a hard time looking back at our scripts and, and finding out which pages are, are which, because uh, you know I, I sort of fell into the, the Chuck Dixon mode of writing where you know I, I kind of adopted his his style and you know we sort of you know kind of I fell into like a groove together and it's it's difficult for me looking back on it sometimes just to see you know which pages were his and which were mine because we would you know write a few pages and send them off and you know two minutes later Chuck would send back pages and you know. I'd write for two hours, and you know that's how it went back and forth. Is this mentoring relationship that you speak of is that common in the uh, comics writing world, or do you think it's more of an exception that you guys had the luck of having? I, I think it's an exception. I don't see too many, you know, I don't see too many guys do this. I mean, you may see a guy hire another guy, uh, you know, as a favor for something he did in the past, but um, you know, not you know taking on what, what at the time to me was a total stranger and, and yeah. listening to Scott talk and go, well, you know, he, you know, he, 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 he talks my language. I mean, he knows what he wants to do. He's got a fire for this and the way I used to. And, um, you know, it's just a matter of, you know, putting your panels in an order and this is how you format and this is what, this is what I do, you know, that's helped me. And, you know, he just gloms right onto it. And yeah, uh, I've bombarded Chuck with many ideas over the years. <laughs> oh, well, yeah. it, it, it still happens. But, you know, it's funny because, you know, we, uh, it's always been 50-50, you know, I mean, that was kind of the ground rules, but, you know, I pull my weight, and uh, it, it's, when we went to D.C. or when D.C. editors would you know, look at the scripts, they would say, well, you know, what did Chuck do? You know, did Chuck script, and did you dialogue, or, you know, did you plot and Chuck script? And it's like, no, we, we wrote, you know, he wrote 50% of the pages, I wrote 50% of the pages. And then when we would finish, each of us would do a write-through and kind of, you know, uh, pull it all together if it needed uh, some some work, and rarely it did. It just you know we kind of noodle each other's dialogue, and and you know in the end it was both of us. Yeah, and it, it was an organic way of working, and you know we would write each other at the corners, you know, hey, solve this, you know, <laughs> uh, and you've got you know the way we've plotted this, you got three pages, you got you got to figure out how to get this done, and um, you know it was a great way to work, and also Scott has my work ethic, you know, the stuff was done on a timely basis. So he could keep up with me, and there's not a lot of guys who can keep up with me. I, I can't tell you how many crossovers I've had to like sit waiting for the oh, next guy, so to finish his script. So hey, unemployment uh, will do that, you know, when you have. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I had left a position. I was uh, editor of Toy Fair magazine, and I decided to take a leap into freelancing. So I, you know, I, I had a lot of time, and you know, I, I segued that into being a stay-at-home dad and freelance writer. You know, which kind of vacillates between the two of you know which is weighed more than the other, but. I always said that uh, working with Chuck is kind of like that old strange sports story from DC Comics where the, the tennis pro is, is on the court and he realizes that uh, mid-game that they're playing with a, a live grenade. And, you know, he, he's lobbing it back and forth. I mean, he keeps serving it back. And he realizes that his childhood friend, and this is you know, inexplicably, the plot you know, makes no sense, that uh, his childhood friend is a robot <laughs> because he's not sweating. And so, you know, DC in the Silver Age. <laughs> yeah, and the, uh, <laughs> the length of the story, you know, is far longer, like, like any cinematic grenade, than, than, you know, the actual grenade has time for. And finally, he, you know, he gives it one just final pow shot and blows up his, uh, 
his adversary. And I always thought that riding with Chuck like that, that Chuck hits the grenade over and I, I've got to hit it back before it explodes. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, and also, if I can just uh, point out this one plot point of the story, the referees were uh, their coaches and mentors, and they were behind bomb-proof glass the entire time. <laughs> <laughs> So I, oh. um, I, I've kept that comic, and I pull it out as a, a model of, of how to collaborate. Okay. <laughs> so you two obviously don't live too terribly close to each other. Did you have a lot of face-to-face time when you were writing, or was it more always at a distance, using phones and things like that? Um, we used to. We, we, yeah, we used to live a lot closer. Okay. Yeah, we could meet in New York. You know, we would go oh, okay. to DC for meetings together, and then we'd, we'd always have time afterwards. Uh, you know, to do to talk the stuff over, and you know, a lot of phone conversations, and you know, a lot of emails back and forth. But yeah, you know, it was an easy process. It wasn't there wasn't that much pushing and pulling to get get it done. We 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 were really, you know, totally had the same idea about how to approach it. Yeah, and when I edited Toy Fair, I used to invite Chuck along to uh, the International Toy Fair in New York City to see all the cool new toys, <laughs> and uh, you know, we shared a mutual appreciation for action figures and uh, that kind of you know plastic waste of time. Yeah, so you know, we would we would find excuses, you know, and it wasn't hard if we were both working at DC. You know, just well, what what day are you going? Because I would go up once a month, and, and uh, we would arrange to meet there. So, you know, and uh, you know, do run up and down editors row trying to poke them into giving us more work. And, and, and we share a real appreciation for from the movies, and uh, you know, oftentimes after a day at DC, it's like, hey, let's go get a movie. And, yeah, yeah. There we are at Fight Club. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, gosh. <laughs> wow. So yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it's it's it, it, you know, it's been fun. It's been more than a professional relationship. That's that's awesome to hear, and I think it really comes through in the writing. Um, and just like you said, everything kind of blends together. You can't really tell where one person leaves off. There's really no, um, I guess, disjunction if that's the right word to use. So I think everything really comes through. Well, I guess we'll just go right into the uh, the actual story. So I wonder, you know, what gave you the idea for Batgirl Year One? How did this all come about? Um, I think, well, we had done, we did Robin Year One before. Right. Like Batgirl That's Year right. One. And um, the, I, I think, Scott, it was you initially came up with the idea that there should be Robin Shadow Year One, just as Batman did. And then the, the the problem was was convincing DC because they held Batman Year One in such high regard that no one could ever follow that act. And I thought this is silly in publishing. When you have a success, you follow up on it. Um, and I thought you know we 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 thought together, and and I'm sure Scott was the one who initially came up with it. You know to, that Robin should have his own Year One. He certainly deserves one. And eventually a whole bookshelf of Year Ones. Uh, why yeah, why yeah. should Frank Miller get the only shot at doing something like that. Yeah, you know, Chuck and I have always, you know, kind of approached this business not just by story, like this would be a great, you know, story or addition to the canon. We also think of it from the marketing standpoint. Why not have a bookshelf? Because it's a business, and, you know, we certainly want to, you know, succeed in this business. So I think when we, you know, we kind of uh, spitballed the idea back and forth for Robin Year One, and uh, DC, you know, bit at it and turned it into, you know, four prestige formats, uh, issues, which, you know, was, you know, kind of a big deal at the time because they, they didn't do that many prestige anymore. And, uh, and then, you know, following, you know, I guess the, the success of that, they said, you know, let's try Batgirl. So now actually, you know, I think we pitched Batgirl. Yeah. Yeah. We had to keep yeah. telling them, you know, they, yeah. 
it, it's weird in a, in a lot of publishing they get a success on their hands and they, they they don't know what to do next and you sort of have to go well let's do another one <laughs> you know because if robin did well i mean certainly Batgirl would do just as well yeah if i recall you know it's been a few years now i think that when we had written robin and that there's that final page i think page 19 or 20 in the last issue where uh, dick is on the rooftop of uh, gcpd headquarters and uh, he meets Barbara Gordon from A Good oh, Life. Oh, yeah. And, you know, it's a line we repeated in, in all three of the year ones we did, the trifecta, Robin, Batgirl, and Nightwing, where Gordon kind of sees the connection between the two characters and says, not in your life, boy, wonder. And I think we kind of set that up. And then, you know, that was the, the, the key that, you know, we thought, okay, here's Babs. Let's, let's go into Batgirl year one. And, and uh, luckily, I guess, that you know, Marcos Martin came in and pitch hit for Javier Polito on uh, Robin uh, with Deadlines. And, you know, he was the natural choice for artist, and, you know, he was just, uh, yeah, we couldn't have picked a better artist. Well, I, well, I remember on, um, when we, we began Robin Year One, we didn't know who was going to draw it. And then we saw Javier's artwork, and we went back and rewrote uh, a large part of Robin Year One to match his artwork. And then Marcos had a lot of the same uh, storytelling sensibilities, so we, we, we just, we were in the groove then. Uh, yeah, you know. yeah, and Marcos and Javier are friends, so when he came in to help, you know, I think the pages there are kind of seamless also, that uh, he really did Javier's style to make it, uh, you know, so there weren't any, you know, it wasn't disjointed at all. Yeah, we concentrated on a more visual storytelling style because, the, you know, both those guys really are remarkable in the way they tell a story. Yeah, since we're on art, I guess just to skip there, uh, how much direction did you uh, give your artists uh, well, the way we both write is it's pretty flexible. It's it's uh, it's a full script, so it's a panel by panel breakdown with all the dialogue. Um, but you know, it's open to interpretation if they want to add, subtract panels uh, because you know they're going to spend more time with the page. It's up to them to make it look good. And as I always say, you know, as long as it makes me look like a genius, I don't care. <laughs> so um, you know, we we left it pretty flexible. And, and yeah, and I don't think either of us micromanage the artist. No. In the way that you know you would see like in a script where, you know, it, it, like the, the, that page with the smiley face button. Not to you know uh, mention Alan Moore again, but you know that <laughs> that, that that first page of Watchmen. I mean, you know, crying out loud, it's ten pages long for just the first page. Right. So you know, I think we both realize that the art the artist's strengths can come through, and and Marcos uh, speaks English, so you know we we only had I think one famous uh, miscommunication or you know <laughs> between languages, which we can talk about later, but. Uh, the, you know, I, I think you know the artist just really got what we were doing and really cared about the characters too. So, okay. So, did you have any particular goals coming in uh, to the actual story? What things that you absolutely needed to address in terms of her history, or characters that you really needed to bring in? Well, the, the one, the one thing I, I really wanted to do, uh, and it's so trivial, it's ridiculous, is that I, I really wanted the Dibneys to have a cameo in the background, <laughs> because uh, in in Batgirl's first Silver Age appearance, uh, she goes to a costume ball dressed as Batgirl, and in that same issue with Detective, the backup was an elongated man story in which he and um, Sue Dibney go to a costume ball. Oh, right. And so I wanted to be the same costume ball. Uh, so they're in the background there somewhere, and that that was my big thing. The other one was to make a little bit more sense of Batgirl's origin, because I don't know if it's apocryphal or not, but Batgirl was created almost overnight to keep up with her introduction to the television series, that they had very little time to come up with an origin for her. 
and uh, so they sort of had to race through it, and we had the luxury of looking at it um, a little bit more, so it made a little bit more dramatic sense. Right. Yeah, I would agree, and I think that uh, we both went into it not wanting to, uh, I think with all the year ones, not wanting to rewrite DC canon, but to kind of, you know, insert, you know, something into the story that's into the history and continuity that made sense and rounded it out more and, you know, expanded upon it rather than uh, deleted it. Yeah, because I, 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 I hate those multiple, multiple stories where they'll tell, you know, Batman's origin and, and add one more character that was there then. <laughs> <You know? laughs> right. Or, or, yeah. or they redo the Punisher's origin. So there's one more person who's in Central Park that day. You know, it's... Uh, that kind of stuff I, I don't like because it, it makes the origin less elegant and, and cumbersome. And we weren't really doing an origin story. We were just telling how she transitioned from just Barbara Gordon, Barbara Gordon librarian to Barbara Gordon Batgirl. And uh, so, we, uh, you know, we didn't want to mess with the origin, but we wanted to do, you know, we had more pages, do the kind of things that, you know, Gardner Fox might have done if he had had the time and, and, and um, you know, the, the, the editorial faith that, that we had and he didn't. So. And we also yeah. had, you know, with nine issues, we had a chance to, you know, pull out all the stops and kind of, you know, ground uh, Barbara Gordon's origin with, uh, you know, like all the other things we put into it, you know, like the, the mention of the JSA who were in Gotham at the time, you know, like things that, that didn't exist pre-Crisis on Infinite Earths, you know, that uh, they kind of all, I think, go into her characterization and where she, you know, is now or was with Birds of Prey and in the Bat family, you know. Oh, and we got by asking the, oh, Go ahead, Chuck. No, we got those four relationship with her dad too, which really does you know it gets short shrift in comics because there's not a lot of room. Right. And I and, and we got to deal with the whole you know secret identity you know the troubles that come along with that, which a lot of comics just eschew anymore. And but I really think is a, a great uh, you know plot device to deal with. So we we did a lot of that stuff you know both for suspense and humor purposes. And you know she's a character too that we you know we really had to ask hard questions. You know how did she do it? She doesn't have the money, you know. And when she does try to do it with, uh, you know, bargain basement climbing rope, you know, she risks, you know, pulling right. her shoulder out at the shoulder. You yeah. Know? yeah. Yeah. I think that was a cool aspect of the story because all she knows about Batman and Robin is what she's seen. She doesn't know anything. You know, she doesn't know who they are, what their motivations are, what their backing is. She, just, she knows nothing about it except what she's seen. And she tries to imitate just that. Yeah, I think one of the things that I definitely applaud is the depth of character that we all get to read in these nine issues. Um, and I've I say to many of my my nerdy friends that if Peter Parker is the everyman of the Marvel universe, then I think Barbara really is the every woman because I think she really. You know, everyone underestimates her in those first few issues. Uh, she's troubled with her her height deficiency, which you know I have encountered as well, being five foot uh, one inch. So I don't know. I just can really see her as being someone that I would hang out with on a day to day basis, and I think that makes her so lovable. That's what I love about her. Um, did you do a character study of her before? Uh, I don't, I don't, I guess I don't know what that would look like, but just very particular aspects that you wanted to um, have shine through the writing and through the pages of this story. I don't know. I don't, I don't usually approach it like that. Okay. I just go, you know, the way I think of the things, and I think Scott shares some of this too, is I think of the big scenes, you know, what are the big scenes where we learn, you know, by what Barbara does, we learn about her. And, right. and, you know, that are big, visually splashy. It's a comic book. It's a superhero. Right. It's, you know, it has to be big. And then you, you work everything around that. 
um, to basically justify those moments. And and I, I don't know, it just sort of flowed. I you know because you live with a character your whole life. I mean, I was introduced to Batgirl when I was a child. Um, you know, you just sort of live with them, and you sort of gain an understanding beyond what you read in those pages. Then you see the stuff between the panels. Uh, if you're really, you know, if you're really nerdy and paying that much attention. Yeah. So, uh, and, you know, I was, and certainly Scott is, uh, <laughs> a big nerd. So, uh, and so it's just sort of like, you know, getting to write about one of your relatives. Right. Yeah, I mean, that, that's really the joy of it. I mean, people that act too cool for school when they're talking about writing comic book characters, they're, they're really lying. I mean, you know, you love these things. You grew up with them, and, you know, there's a, a secret desire to, you know, want to be them. And that's why I always love Dick Grayson, because, I mean, he's the kid who got to live in the Batcave right. and ride around with Batman. And I think Batgirl, you know, it, it was a natural extension of, you know, Robin Year One and also just writing about Dick Grayson and that, you know, nothing super bad happened to her where she had to, you know, had this burning desire for vengeance and retribution, she wanted to be a cop, and she wanted to be a really, really, you know, cool cop, and, yeah, you know, had the temerity to, you know, walk up to Batman and say, I can do this too. And, you know, for Batman to allow it, you know, I think it really allowed us to explore what it means for her to pursue this goal, and what it means for Batman to let it happen. His you know, really, for a loner superhero, he, he has a big family, you know? <laughs> He's never alone. He's never alone. You know, hey, here's my dog with his mask, Ace. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Batgirl, you know, there's been a string of Robins. I mean, he desperately wants a family. Right. And, you know, and maybe there's a selfish reason there that we didn't explore that, you know, maybe it was an in with Commissioner Gordon, you know, a way to keep tabs on you know, the police better by letting his daughter. But uh, it certainly doesn't make a lot of rational sense. Yeah. And, you know, and it's not like Bruce Wayne isn't the most, you know, unselfish character in that regard. Yeah, very true. Now, I have read all of your, your year ones, and I just want to kind of talk about or touch upon the tone of this story in relation to the tone of Robin Year One, uh, because I, in my opinion, I thought Robin Year One was actually darker than Batgirl Year One. Uh, you can disagree with me, obviously, since you are the creators. Um, well, but uh, well, we did have Two Face beat up with a baseball bat. Yeah, yeah. Well, see, yeah, things like that, and I just wondered, you know, what kind of makes the tone? Do you think it's the characters involved, or do you think it really is the writers? Because I see Batgirl and Robin as being both very positive, optimistic, you know, at times kind of bubbly, and but. But in my opinion, like I said, you know, those two stories kind of seem really uh, different in tone. Well, with, with Batgirl, I mean, I, you know, she's like better adjusted than most of those heroes are. Um, and as Scott said, she, her motivation was because, you know, her, her dreams of what would be her career were thwarted. You know, she couldn't become a cop. So she took the next best route. And, you know, we were able to go darker with Robin because he's kind of closer in the circle to Batman, which is, is inherently dark. I mean, they both share the same background, their parents being killed in front of their eyes. And, right. and then, you know, we could have more horrible things happen to Robin because that's his history. Horrible things are always happening to Robin. And uh, I don't feel good about a female character and having horrible things. I know that's not the norm at DC these days, but, you know, having a, a female character get beaten and so I'm right. not into that. I don't like that. Uh, I want to see, but I want to see her succeed. There's always this threat of something horrible happening to her, but I want to see her overcome in every instance. Right. Plus, we knew yeah. we we knew in continuity what was down the road for her. There's no reason to go darker. Everybody knows yeah, her very true. Believe. Yeah, and I think that's why we had the. Uh, you know, we had talked about with Robin Year One that the the uh, 
kind of the expository voice was always going to be offered. And, you know, we didn't, we, we, and then, initially we weren't sure where we were going to go with that with uh, uh, Backer Year One, and, and Alfred does have kind of a little segue where he does have his, his bit of, you know, Alfred's journal in uh, Backer before, you know, it becomes Bab's voice exclusively. But, you know, after everything that kind of bad had happened to, to Dick and Robin Year One, by the time you get to Batgirl, the franchise is expanding. You know, they have turned a corner, and Batman's realizing, I think, the need for, you know, a little help. Right. Here and Diversifying there. And, the cave. Yeah, and I agree, and I think that, uh, you know, it goes to what Chuck says, too, that, you know, it, it was sort of a brighter character and a more optimistic character, and for Babs to want to do it in the first place, and I think you, we, we hit that with uh, her mention of the Oracle, you know, that, that, that running theme throughout, that she's, she's trying to perceive her future and she can't, and, you know, we, we all know what's going to happen to her. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes a character evolves the way they evolve, and you, and, you, and you just don't want to mess with that. You don't want to change it because it's public perception of them. I mean, even on the TV show, she was kind of a you know a little bit more hip than the other two. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, she, it was almost as if she had a mocking you know regard for them. If they were you know they're, they're these silly guys, right? even though she's running around in a costume, it seems silly for them to be doing it and taking it so seriously all the time. Yeah. And, uh, and 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 as much as. Uh, the the back crew we worked with did not like me referencing, or either one of us referencing the the old show. It, it's still a big influence on me, and I know it is on Scott. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I don't think you can. I mean, that's why uh, I think that uh, the character resonates so much because you know there there is that love of the old show, and you know that's most uh, creators' you know, introduction to the character. So it uh, you know suddenly there's a girl in the back cave, you know, and that changes up that changes up the you know the man women haters club you know <laughs> but I, I think that the story you know uh, works and uh, when we're telling these origin stories the, the ability that you know we have to get across is that we have to retell the origin in a way that keeps people interested for nine issues even though they know what happened before you know we're not we're adding new wrinkles but we're not fundamentally you know deviating from the canon so yeah it's more like a here's what you didn't know kind of right story. right right and it's and that, that's one of the hardest things to do. I was watching uh, 127 Hours last night, and it's a film where, you know, all the way through you're thinking, he's going to make it. He's going to get out of that rock. <laughs> but you know full well, well, no, it ends with him cutting his arm off. Yeah. You know? But the, the strength of the story and the storytellers is that all the way through that you think that, man, this just might change along the way. And I think with Batgirl and, you know, the year ones, we're, we're trying to, you know, make it seem like something different just might happen. And sometimes it does. Right. Now, you mentioned, Scott, uh, about Alfred narrating uh, via his diary or his journal, I suppose, uh, Robin Year One. And in this one, obviously, Babs is narrating. And in the first few chapters, there's actually really little dialogue. And I just wondered how important was it that, you know, first of all, Babs narrating her own story, which I guess is probably an obvious question, but um, more having the action unfold through that and rather than dialogue. How, How important was that for you guys? Um, I think it's. Oh, go ahead. No, no, go ahead, Scott. I was going to say I think it speaks to storytelling that sometimes you know the writers need to know when to shut up and let the art work. I mean, it's a collaborative medium, and you know I think that both Chuck and I are aware that when a panel can be silent and when you know just the art can convey it. And I think you know <laughs> I like I like in Alfred's Alfred's uh, exposition to you know keeping a record just in case <laughs> there's ever right. any litigation. Uh, and again, from what I said before, Oracle. 
that Barbara is is talking about the oracle. She's trying to foretell the future. So, you know, I think a lot of our uh, I, it doesn't always come off as past tense. She's speaking in present tense and sometimes future tense as she's trying to, you know, narrate what's going to happen in the story and you know sort of influence the future. Yeah, and I, and I, um, I, I, you know, in comics, I think the visuals are the most engaging thing about it. Obviously, it's the first thing you see before you read the words. And uh, in, in any story, I like to not be too word-heavy at the beginning and allow the art to draw the reader in. Okay. And and then, you know, and, and always think that a balance between words and pictures. And I, I know on Robin Year One, and I think on Batgirl Year One also, we, when we saw the art, we actually cut a, a, a good deal of our dialogue because it was simply unnecessary. Yeah, uh, when a guy, when the artist pulls the absolute perfect expression on a character, why have them state the way they feel? Uh, so just let him do it, and I think it it, it makes it, it makes for a smoother read, uh, and, and also makes for something that you would want to go back and read again, uh, because it it just has that more engaging um, feel, draws you in more. Yeah, and I, I think too, you know, I mean, learning from Chuck and, and learning from uh, the, the way that I came into writing comics. It was so important to have things like, you know, uh, opening splash pages that draw the reader in and page turns and money shots and, you know, the things that I think are lost in a lot of comics these days because, you know, the, the form is different or you can't count on the ad placement not screwing up, you know, what is supposed to be a dramatic page turn. So. Yeah, and you talk for the art or about the art speaking for itself. And, you know, one of my favorite panels is where you see just the outline of Dick and Babs after their fight with Blockbuster. And uh, you wonder, you know, what's going to happen. And then she shoves him away and both of those panels are um, (laughs) silent. And, of course, we'll get into the Dick and Babs um, relationship later since I'm a big uh, fan of that. But um, certainly the art does speak for itself and rereading quality very much so i've read it so many times so well i think that too comes from a love of cinema you know there's there's yeah. moments that there's no dialogue or there's no grand sweeping score or rising score you know where you just you just have that that frame and uh i think that we come you know, chuck and i come together in that regard where you know sometimes we just have to sit back and just let it happen yeah it's got to be a balance yeah Okay, well, moving on from the overall, I kind of want to touch upon uh, the characters, and I just have, I guess, questions involving those. So I want to start, I guess, with Robin, for whatever reason, and I wondered, you know, why was it so important to have him play such a large role in this story? Well, he's kind of the, you know, he's almost her competition, you know. She, she, I, I think in her mind, she doesn't have to be as good as Batman, she just has to be as good as Robin, or better. So there's that rivalry. And then, you know, he's, you know, he's an adolescent boy, and all of a sudden this girl shows up in the picture. So he's, uh, he's either going to hate her or be drawn to her. Right. And she's pretty. Yeah. Really pretty. <laughs> Very and true. And even though she's a little older, you know, she's petite, so she's around his size. And, you know, it's just, it's just going to happen. And, you know, yeah, and I, what, think, I think that's not what she's there for at all. So. And I think self-indulgently from my part, I mean, I grew up with, you know, reading Batman Family and, you know, the Robin and Batgirl team-ups where, uh, you know, Robin would, you know, go through the entire story trying to screw up the courage to tell Babs his true feelings, and then at the end of it, she's asleep. (laughs) After after a hard night of, you know, night of crime fighting, she dozes off, and he's like, Babs, I just wanted to let you know that I really, oh. (laughs) So so I I think that, you know, we had a chance to kind of play off that, that, uh, 
you know, and of course, simultaneously in Chuck's solo books, you know, Nightwing and Birds of Prey, you know, there's this relationship is, you know, reigniting. So I think we, right. we had a chance to really explore the roots of it. Yeah, so would you say that this teamwork laid the groundwork for the, the Dick and Babs uh, romantic relationship, or was that really already going on and then... Yeah, like, I, was going, I, was, I had laid, I, I had started it okay. in, in Birds of Prey and Nightwing, um, you know, uh, prior to that. It was, it was I, I think it was just heating up as the Back Row Year One came out. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think Year One came out around the same time as, as like Birds of Prey Eight, which is yeah. where everybody looks at. You know, that's oh, where it yeah. begins. Right, right. Okay. Um, one thing I have to say is I feel really bad for Robin that you made him dress up like Batgirl <laughs> at the very end. <laughs> and I just I don't know that look on his face when you know you're talking about looks being everything. And seriously, that that's classic. That pork. And he says, you know, oh, I thought she liked me. It's just so kind of heart wrenching for him in the end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that really goes along with all the times that, you know, Alf would dress up as Batman. <laughs> right. Know? And, you know, and it's enough that, you know, certainly you can't fill out the suit, but from a distance at night in silhouette, it works. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and you know, it reference, I, I mean, if there's one story I've referenced more than any other in my career, it's the thousand and one strange costumes of the Batman where, you know, Robin's got to get into someone else's outfit, you know, to save the day. I just, I just love that idea. Yeah. Okay, well, moving on to Batman, um, what type of role did he need to play in this story? Um, Justice. Oh, dear. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, what key elements uh, did he need to bring to Barbara's origin? Well, I mean, he's the shadow over everything. I mean, you know, we wouldn't have it without him, so. Yeah, and he's the dad figure, but see, Barbara already had a dad. And, right. and who she didn't have any falling out with or any disrespect for. She didn't need another father figure, which I think made it more her progress more interesting than Robin's. Because and Batman's a really lousy dad. Yeah, he really is. He's not very attentive. So and he misses, you know, the, the nuances. Yeah, I mean, he's, <laughs> he's emotionally distaffed, and I mean, he's just, he, he's not, you know, it's nothing matters but the war, and that's something that, that Chuck had always talked about, and that I, I really bought into when I worked with him on this, and when I uh, wrote Gotham Knights. I mean, it's my understanding of the Batman and, and Bruce Wayne is there's nothing else. It's the war, the war, the war. If you're with me, you're in the war. And uh, so if, you know, if Dick says, well, geez, there's a dance tonight, it's like, well, okay, you can go to the dance or you can be in the war and make a difference. <laughs> so, <laughs> right, right. You know, what, what are you going to choose? So, And I think Barbara, I mean, she certainly respects Batman, but then resents the fact that he sort of like, you know, made himself boss. And then literally, you know, who made you boss? It's it's a vigilante, and the very definition of vigilante is you just do whatever the heck you want. You know, right. There are any rules, and here's Batman laying down the groundwork for rules, and she she railed a little bit against that. First, that you know why can't I do it? You know, and then you know how can you tell me what to do? And of course, you know she learns that this guy's been doing it a little while longer. He does know what he's doing. Yeah, and, and no one really ever speaks to it. But you know, Gotham City is so much a character in all of these stories, and that. You know, it, it needs a Batman, and and Batman isn't quite enough because there's there's so much, you know, criminality and madness happening. So you know, you can see why Barbara or, or Dick would want to you know join in on this crusade because, you know, it's stemming the tide, but not by much. 
Well, you were talking about the 60s show, and uh, just so you know, I'm not one of these young whippersnappers that doesn't respect things from the past. I have been watching them, kind of going through them each episode of my podcast and going um, in depth in them. And so Alfred in in the series actually knows that Barbara is Batgirl, but he never tells Batman or Robin. And so I have a couple ethical questions to ask you. Something that has always bothered me is whether it was right that Bruce looked under her cowl after he gassed her the second time and then put her, you know, in the car and told her to obviously step away from this. Do you think that was right? Well, it was creepy. (laughs) That's true, yes. But from from Batman's standpoint, he had to be certain. He has to know who she is. He can't just have this mysterious stranger who could possibly turn out to be an enemy, um, you know, in their midst. And otherwise not knowing her secrets. And otherwise, they'd leave her off at, in, in an alley instead of, you know, her address. <laughs> so, <laughs> <That's true. laughs> but again, you know, nothing matters but the war. So, you know, right. I, how could he not see who she is? Because that's, you know, that information is just so integral to, you know, what's going on with her. Okay, and my second ethical question is, should he have used, Batman that is, real bullets in the test that he threw Babs in? And I said, you know, oh, he was just trying to challenge her. I think he had faith all along. But one of my cohorts said, you know, no, that was that was the worst thing he could have ever done. So what do you think his thinking was in doing that? Well, there we veer into, like, comic book reality. Okay. You know, if someone did that in real life, yeah, they're, well, you're a psychopath. Well, if, if, any, <laughs> if anybody did any of the things Batman does, they'd be a psychopath. It's very true. If they just ran around in costume or lived in a cave, they'd be a psychopath. So we sort of have to excuse that kind of thing, that this is how hardcore this guy is. He uses real bullets. Yeah, and, you know, our military uses real bullets in the training. So, uh, I, you know, it wasn't that much of a stretch. In reality, no. I mean, you know, if you were training police officers, you wouldn't be having live fire exercises over their heads and around them. But, you know, that man had to know she could cut it. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, yeah. I mean, we don't know how many shallow graves there are, you know. It, oh, <laughs> the oh wow. <laughs> Something I've never thought about, oh, my. <laughs> so I think, I think Chuck is right, though. I mean, it's, you know, it's, sometimes it has to get serious, and this is where it got really serious. Right. And I think that there had to be a moment, and maybe, you know, I don't know if we thought of it then, but maybe we were, you know, veering towards uh, having some way to scare her off. And if she was scared off by this or didn't do it, I mean, she jumped right in there. So, you know, this shows that, that she had the metal to uh, to take on the mantle of, of Batgirl. You know, but yeah. she would really have some explaining to do. <laughs> oh, you know, gosh. It, it would yeah. work out a different way. Yeah. It would have been like that Batman the Animated Series episode where uh, she dreams that she was killed by the Scarecrow. Do you remember this yeah, one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then all this stuff happens that is terrible. Uh, well, do you have anything else to say on Batman? I know he's a big character, so I don't want to move on if you have any no. anything else to say. No? No. I okay. Don't know. I, I think we kind of, you know, Batman was, you know, sort of looming behind the scenes throughout yeah. the entire thing. But we didn't really, you know, he, he came in from the shadows when we needed him. Right. You know, this was really Barb's, uh, Barbara's story. And uh, I think we used Robin and other characters to kind of fulfill that. I mean, he, he had a kind of a mythic status throughout that, uh, you know, until we actually had the uh, swearing of the oath and, the, you know, the confrontations. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, because he, he, he's a scene stealer. You know, if you let him take over the story, Yeah, very well, true. Yeah. 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 You know, just keep him in the background. And I think it, the reason why Robin Year One worked for us was because, you know, having Alfred 
comment on what was happening, having other characters comment meant more than, you know, what Batman had to say, because at least Alfred and, and Barbara and, you know, Dick Grayson all asked the, you know, the really important ethical questions that Bruce isn't concerned with, you know. With the yeah, war. he's either answered them himself or he doesn't want to think about them. Yeah. So, you know, when Alfred comes in and says, is this the right thing, Master Bruce? Clearly no, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but but somebody has to voice that you know in Batman saying it I think it puts doubt into Batman you know our, our Batman isn't the kind that you know uh, tinkles in his uh, bat shorts the first night out oh my yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well my uh, my next character is Black Canary and uh, she's actually one of my favorites besides uh, good old Barbara Gordon and so I just wondered you know why pull her in uh, was it um kind of foreshadowing what we were to expect in Birds of Prey? Yeah, well, definitely. We wanted to give them a history. Right. Uh, that, you know, the readers, you know, readers like that kind of stuff, where right. they feel like they're in on it. You know, because, oh, hey, I know where this is going. You know, and you want to, you know, you want to reward them with that. Plus, you know, it's sort of irresistible story point and easy enough to bring her in. And also, yeah. you know, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of a female mentor, and then their, their roles kind of reverse later on. You know, where it's uh, it's it's Barbara's Oracle mentoring Black Canary, right? And it's, it's a shared universe too. Yeah, that uh, in in ways that you know you can make these kind of cameo appearances work without feeling like they're shoehorned. And I, I had written enough uh, timelines of the DC universe and and, and profile pages to that, that I I think I came to the the Justice Society cameo in a way that I thought could work because you know they were in Gotham City or you know or at least a corner of Gotham City that isn't always acknowledged in the Bat universe, so. Yeah, and also, I mean, and, and, and Scott is like a, a scholar on this stuff. I mean, he, he, he would remember stuff or be able to uh, make sense of stuff that I really hadn't got my head around. So I would always use, you know, his guidance on, you know, yeah, these, these characters would be together at this time, and this is what would be going on in their lives, so we could make a sense out of that. And it makes it seem like a richer universe. You know, when you when you show that no, it's there's something beyond all the uh, of beyond the main characters we're seeing here. I always think, um, and and I think it's you know partially your awesome writing, Chuck. But these two characters really do have an awesome sisterly chemistry going on, and I just wonder, what do you think makes um, these two get along so well? Like they just seem to very much flow together. I think it's their differences more than their similarities. You know. That um, that Dinah really doesn't think ahead that much, <laughs> and and Barbara Barbara thinks of everything. She thinks right. tries to think of every contingency, and Black Canary is more likely to just jump in. And I think that they sort of complement one another in that way. And Canary is also a second. Canary is also a second generation superhero who is right. you know the daughter of a detective. So you know there were some similarities that I think we talked about yeah. in writing it. That, you know they would kind of be drawn to each other in a way and. And, uh, you know, certainly, you know, big sister, little sister. And, uh, you know. Yeah, for me, the, the, the defining thing about Black Canary is, that, you know, why would she stay with Oliver Queen for so long? Oh, gosh. You know, and that's like a flaw. I see that as a flaw in her character. It's not something to dislike. Anybody can make a mistake like that. But it's like, geez, your judgment is not very good. And she, and she really needed a Barbara Gordon in her life to, to, to give her focus and, and, you know, more of a mission. 
Okay, well, my next person is Jason Bard, which I'm actually pretty excited about because I think you really added some depth to this character. So he was introduced, I'm sure you already know this, you know, way back in Detective Comics 392. And um, we learn he has a bum knee because of war, uh, Vietnam War. And, you know, in your story, I think we actually get to see it, which is nice, you know, how he gets the the knee. And it wasn't because of war, but... um, you know, why did you choose to include him in the story in the first place? And then why did you choose to uh, kind of tinkle with? Is that's You said tinkle, and now that's in my mind for some reason. <laughs> I'm in um, a completely different way. Yeah. But, you know, kind of change up his history, his character history. I think that was more self-indulgence, too, because I think Chuck had been using him in uh, Birds of Prey, but also, you know, we talked about how, you know, there was a romantic interest in, uh, like, I think back when Detective Comics was an 80-page giant or, or it had uh, a lot of anthology stories after the Batman backup, and uh, some of the, like, the Don Heck Batgirl stories had uh, a romantic interest with, with, you know, Barbara and Jason Bard. And, right. And certainly I don't think we could have done, you know, that he was a, a veteran of NOM because that, that would, you know, date the story, but I think we explained away that, you know, the knee injury that kind of ruined his chances on the force and it added another point to the romantic triangle with uh, with Dick Grayson, with a, a more mature guy who made more sense for Barbara, but, you know, was outside of that whole Bat uh, family. Yeah, the only thing I, I remember clearly is it consciously moving it away from the Vietnam thing because it dated it and right. then not making it a, a war injury because any war injury would date it, you know, to that war. So just sort of make it so that you could read the story 40 years from now and, and you know, you're not, the you're the, the um, paradoxes or whatever, anachronisms aren't sticking out at you. Right. I always feel bad reading the uh, Silver Age issues because he just seems so, such a weak character because, you know, he may trip over his legs, you know, when he's fighting a villain and then Babs has to go save him. So at least he was able, you know, to, to be more of a, a man, I guess, in your story. So I was happy. And also, it, it it sort of um, you know it, it, it sort of foreshadows that you know she's going to have some of the same problems right down the road. Yeah, crippling so, injury. Yeah, very yeah. true. And then you know it didn't, he didn't let it get him down. So we really wanted. I, I, it's probably totally subconscious on both our parts. We really wanted him to show him as a guy that could you know do it anyway. He was capable despite his injury. Uh, so that you know that would be a. Um, an inspiration for her later on. Right. I doubt very much we were consciously doing that, but you know, sometimes this stuff just comes out without realizing it. And then you, then you of course say, "Yeah, we thought of that." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you know, in hindsight, when we deconstruct it, you know, we can look at it and say, "Well, you know, there's all these men around her. You know, the father figures, and you know, the romantic interests, and everything. And they're all different in terms of their characterization and what they bring to Barbara and they bring to the story. And you know, it, I, I guess you know, when you're doing that subconsciously, and it, it works. You know, hooray! You know, when you know you're really trying to force it, I think then readers pick up on it and their alarm bells go off. Yeah, I, I mean, my whole writing career, like in the latter half of it, I really concentrate on um, telling a story without making it seem like I'm telling a story. You know, so events just seem to happen more naturally. And I think, you know, um, as far as I go, I think back here, year one is one of the, the more successful efforts at that because the story just seems to, to flow naturally. Right. And we were able to draw it out for nine issues. I, you know, I mean, they, I think DC wanted the same page count, you know, more or less as Robin Year One, 
and but didn't want to do prestige in terms of four forty-eight page issues. So when they broke it down, yeah, because they weren't issues, selling at the time prestige. Yeah, they weren't. They weren't because you know it was like five ninety-five a pop for you know a single issue as opposed to you know whatever it was a dollar ninety-nine or two ninety-nine, and uh, you know and we were able to you know carry the story through and you know kind of take a a, a real segue around issue five into the whole. Killer Moth and Firefly Origins, and right. where, where Barbara, you know, rarely has, you know, much to do or much to say in that issue, and that's, and then pick up again with a full head of steam, you know, through the remaining four issues and into the conclusion. I, mean, we, we, I think we really did some interesting stuff. And, and it, I don't know, it worked out because um, our sales figures actually went up over the yeah. course of a limited series, and that never happens. And our sales figures on nine were actually higher than the sales figures on like two and three which that just simply never happens. I mean, people just fall away from a book and they don't come back. Right. Uh, but I think word of mouth uh, got out with the first few issues. And I, I think it speaks out. to the story, too, that, you know, we were one of, you know, how many a handful of stories that DC, you know, uh, used for their uh, um, motion comics. You yeah. know, Mad Love, Watchmen, uh, <laughs> a few of the, you know, the cooler Batman black and white stories and back row year one. So, you know, we have had some, some real longevity and... Uh, you know, it's gone back into printing again, and I hope it stays, you know, vibrant for a long time. Me yeah, I hope too. It I, I, yeah, I hope it survives this new uh, retro fit they're doing. Oh, dear. Yeah, we'll get to that in the end if you guys have time. Uh, well, you mentioned the villains. Uh, yeah, issue five, why, why, uh, why so different, I guess? Why did you decide to look into the minds of the villains? Oh, why not? Yeah, also... Uh, <laughs> Killer Moth in particular, he kind of needed some explaining. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and he needed some time to be brought on stage correctly, you know, because it's a cool concept that was uh, was always under-dramatized. And, and, and he was, you know, um, her arch-nemesis through the 60s and 70s. So he was the one who showed up most often to fight Batgirl specifically. So um, I wanted to bring him on board. And, and, and also I had always wanted to do Firefly's origin in some detail, uh, and there was room here to do that. Yeah, and I think uh, just in terms of how the, the villains play off each other, you know, we kind of set up Fire or uh, Killer Moth as as uh, you know a little bit unhinged, and you know we, we really had to kind of push him further with uh, Firefly, and the Firefly was completely unhinged. Right. So you know the villains, you know, separately they were you know real issues to deal with, but together. Bad news. Yeah, and then they, you know the whole you know it's DC, so it gets a little silly. Uh, the, the moth to the flame. I mean, it's <laughs> again another thing that was irresistible. I mean, yeah. yeah, these two characters have to team up, and then to create you know we I, I had pretty much had Firefly's personality set in stone, so we knew he was just a complete maniac. Right. And then to have him with Killer Moth, this this del delusional character who feels like he has a mission, you know, to be the anti-Batman. And chooses like the dumbest persona you can possibly think of. I mean, Killer Moth. Where did you come up with that? Yeah. And uh, you know, to have them play off of one. Another, I mean, I, I, they, they wrote their own dialogue. <laughs> I could have written them to the end of time. <laughs> <laughs> the moth is changing. <laughs> yeah. I loved uh, when he said, "Maybe I just need a, a sidekick," and he tries to come up with names and <laughs> lepidoptera lad and things like that. You know. <laughs> It's like he got everything wrong. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, again, you know, I, it, what, we, you know, what we did with Killer Moth and then looking at uh, Caraxes, you know, which, you know, Chuck had written, 
as part of, you know, Underworld Unleashed, where, you know, Killer Moth went to Naron, or, you know, Naron went to him and said, you know, what do you want? I want people to fear me. Okay, you're a giant bug, <laughs> you know, for real. And so I think that, you know, looking back on the character and how he portrayed him, it, it really leads up to understanding why, you know, when somebody gives you a deal with the devil, you know, you end up as a giant, you know, man-eating bug. <laughs> and, and, and again, I mean, a lot of that stuff, because it was so in continuity at the time, um, you know, with what was currently happening in, in the present day books that Chuck was writing and were happening in D.C., I think we were really conscious of trying to make all this stuff make sense so that it fit pretty, you know, seamlessly into D.C. canon so that, you know, it wouldn't be rewritten in a year or two years or five years. And we wanted something that had real staying power. And then I guess the final villain, uh, I guess we'll we'll just pass by Condiment King. But oh, you know come the on. Oh, oh well we can talk about him. You know, I do enjoy his appearance. That's a favorite of Chuck. You can't you can't not talk okay, about Okay, let's talk about Condiment King. <laughs> well he he was created for the animated series. He was a throwaway. Oh right. So uh but I liked him. Uh and I thought, you know, um of all the villains in Gotham City, you've got to have some complete losers show up. You know, guys who just, you know, have are clueless. And uh, I just like the idea that this guy shows up and he seems really silly, but in his own way, he is very dangerous. So, yeah, but mustard yeah, well, probably I does sting. Yeah, mustard probably does sting if it gets in your eye. You know. <laughs> well, where do you think mustard gas comes from? I mean, there you go. There's the, the Scoville scale. It's dangerous. Oh dear. <laughs> Watch out for those. You know, habaneros. It's terrible. And really, you know, despite how serious it is, and trying to make a you know a, a dramatic story, you know, you can't not indulge some of that that Batman stuff where, you know, you have a character who talks about, you know, I relish the opportunity to serve you. You wouldn't in a million years write a story like that at Marvel, but at DC it like begs to be written because, you know, there's just, too, you know, well, at the time and, and, and prior to it, there, there was, that was the tone of DC. There was just this little bit of goofiness to every story, which I thought was wonderful. It's like that episode of The Brave and the Bold where Batmite shows up at the Interdimensional Comic-Con and, you know, reads the, uh, the statement from all the writers of Batman, <laughs> of the, uh, the actual episode that says that, you know, every Batman throughout history is valid and, you know, and is, is you know, a Batman to some fan and is therefore, you know, just one more way to look at Batman. <laughs> so, right. You know, it's all part of the history. And if you can acknowledge it in a fun way, you know, we're not trying to negate it. I mean, uh, we're all fans of it. Chuck and I, you know, love that stuff. Yeah, we're not we're not so much mocking it as you know just um, you know throwing some sort of, some some contrast on it. Yeah, you know, and trying to make it make sense. I mean, I think that's uh, to me that's what the 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 Adam West television show did. It was a bunch of writers who who put their minds to making sense of the Bat Mythos. Because like it or not, and and, and guys rail against this. That show was influential, and it did answer a lot of questions, and it did lay down some groundwork that everybody that wrote comics afterwards followed. Because it was it was a good solid groundwork for the characters' interrelationships between the villains, the heroes, and and all the rest of it. And, and he's also a plot device too. I mean, you know, he he is the bridge between, you know, uh, the meeting up between Robin and Batgirl and getting us to Blockbuster and that whole you know big, right. uh, cycles and the subway, you know, versus the train sequence. So you know, it, it's sometimes those characters just serve that that's that purpose of getting you from point A to point B so you can get into the, the set piece that is the, you know, the big draw. Yeah. And thanks for telling me. I had no idea that um, 
he was uh he was created i guess for batman the animated series because i actually just watched that uh episode a couple days ago so that's kind of funny yeah so, that's the first place he showed up paul dini created him wow and, and i just i i said can i use this guy as soon as i saw him <laughs> in the cartoon i said can i use this guy i want to use this guy and they were like well you know you know we had every right because the, the characters ultimately belong to warners to use him but but uh, but they said well call paul and ask him and, and i wanted to do the courtesy so i called paul and said is it okay if we use him in the comic and he was like yeah please so i we, he sort of got a, a whole new life in the comic because i used him quite a bit so maybe if you guys write uh, a Batgirl year two, you can bring in, uh, what was his name, Packrat? Was that his name? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe you could use that guy, too. That'd be fun. Yeah. Um, so then I guess the final villain would be Blockbuster. And did you bring him in mainly to tie to Robin year one, where we had the other Desmond brother in there? Or was there? Yeah, sort of, you know, um, and we wanted... I, I, I don't know how we got to Blockbuster, but I, I know we wanted to end with a big, scary film, you know, and yeah. but not use the Joker. Um, and so we wanted our big action scene to be with one of the more dangerous uh, guys in the Batman Rose Gallery. And Blockbuster seemed to fit the bill, especially since, you know, um, his brother was appearing in Nightwing. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's tied to the present day. And I think, too, you know, this is another case where, you know, when we were writing it, we may not have gone into it saying, okay, you know... I know Chuck wanted to do something with bat cycles in the subway, and I'm not sure which one of us, you know, came up with the idea of Blockbuster raging on a on a train, you know, and you know the two of them going up against it, but it just kind of made sense, and and then bringing that element of you know having the uh, Billy Pettit and the GCPD SWAT team, you know, ready to take them out. I mean, it just it, it became this this very intricately uh, designed you know action sequence that. Uh, I mean, it turned into a lot of fun. I mean, I remember, you know, the joy of writing that was not knowing where it was going to end. <laughs> yeah, and Marcos, just, he just knocked it out of the park. I mean, it's oh, absolutely seamless. And um, the other, I, I think, I think our idea was is that she had passed every other test. Barbara had proved herself in every single way. The last one was, you know, physical danger. I mean, you know, how, how big a guy can you take out? Uh, because she'd proven she's, she's certainly smart enough, she's certainly fast enough, uh, she was a good enough detective. You know, it, it, easily they're equal. And uh, but but could she? You know, survive? You know, it's like the, the the fireman's test. You know, can you carry one of your buddies out of the building? If you can, you can be a fireman. If you can get past Blockbuster, you can be part of the Batman. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and you know, uh, not to skip ahead, but to speak to Marcos's abilities. I mean, if you look at the, that cover for that issue, is one of my my all time favorites. Oh, very true. Yeah, comics, and and for the fact that for nine issues we had, you know, just very um, simple but iconic covers that are just so dynamic all along, with a very simple logo, and you know, even the first issue. I mean, you know, to have the character not in costume, and the logo is actually the you know the solar <laughs> boot. I mean, I, you know, I don't know if. Uh, if it speaks also to our editor at the time, uh, Matt Idelson, but you know, they took some real chances there with it that I think you know paid off in a, a very, very wonderful way. And you know, it's not acknowledged in many places, but we were named best miniseries of 2003 by Wizards Magazine in a year in edition. So you know, it didn't we didn't win any Eisners or, or Inkpot awards or anything like that. But you know, Wizard named us the best miniseries, and at the time in 2003, Wizard was still top of the heap. So that was pretty gratifying. Well, if only I had known that statistic when I wrote my letter to uh, Warner Brothers in a plea to make the Batgirl Year One direct-to-video, but, you know, we'll get to that, I guess. 
Um, okay, well, the final character I have is Jim Gordon, and I've kind of uh, smushed both of the Gordons together to really talk about this relationship because I think it's so well done. Um, so what was your strategy going in, you know, with Jim Gordon and with this father-daughter relationship, and how did you want to portray it? Well, I mean, like any dad with his daughter, you know, he's raising her by himself. He's he's overprotective, and but he, you know, he, I mean, she's reached that age where he wants to protect her, but he realizes he has to let her go on her own and be independent as well. And uh, you know, with no clue as to what her plans are. Uh, so, you know, I mean, that's that that's about as far as I went with it. And then you know, the fact that you know she's. To be Batgirl, she's going to have to fool her dad, who is a really good detective. Right. You know, he's, no, he's no dummy. And I think the only the only thing that helped her was is that he simply couldn't imagine his daughter doing something like that. Yeah, it was so far out from you know the realm of anything he imagined that uh, you know I, I, I think Gordon's the, the fact that, that Gordon never caught on you know in any of the older stories and you know we sort of hint that uh, maybe he knew more than than. Uh, anyone really believed. Yeah, because I think, I think particularly at the time, the, the, the conceit was is that Gordon, Gordon could know all of these secrets if he really put his mind to it. He, he chose not to know who Batman was, but, you know, he probably could have figured it out, or he certainly could have figured it out if he, if, he, if he put an effort. But it was, you know, more expedient just to not know. So how yeah, early... It, it, oh, I'm sorry. He's also a single father, too, and you know, yeah, it's not exactly like Barbara's a latchkey kid. I mean, she's a college, an early college graduate. She's an overachiever, right. and you know, really handles things herself. I think that, if anything, you know, Babs was doing a lot of, uh, you know, domestic stuff, just making, you know, enabling Gordon to do his job and come home at night and have a hot meal and get up the next day and go back out. So, how early on do you think he had his uh, his suspicions? Do you think the red hair was just the light bulb, the red hair that he saw in uh, Blockbuster's hand? Yeah, I certainly. You know, you you kind of leave it up to the imagination. The reader can decide how much he knows and doesn't know. Because you don't want to portray him as an idiot. You know. Uh, you know. Uh, so, yeah, you can leave it there that you know. Yeah, okay, maybe he knows. Or maybe this is his first indication. Or maybe at least it gives him, put some doubts in his mind or some thoughts in his mind to put two and two together. But then just sort of leave it there. Because you don't want to, it's a story you don't want to end. You don't, you don't want to change the continuity of the characters to that degree. Right. Yeah, yeah, but it's fun dropping hints. Because, I mean, you know, he has his, his working life, and that's keeping Gotham safe from, you know, a whole host of, you know, villainy, and then there's his domestic life and, you know, role as a father, and, and suddenly when, you know, Babs is going out late at night for a, you know, midnight dojo and, you know, is using cold cream to cover up, you know, third uh, second-degree burns on her right. face and, and uh, you know, has all this uh, computer equipment, you know, sent to the house that, you know, that part of his mind that is still, like, you know, acting as a father is going to, you know, he's a father of a daughter, so I think that, you know, things are are always going to be suspicious to him. Uh, now, in 1971, which is where I am in my uh, my vintage readings, uh, Detective Comics 417, we actually find out that Jim Gordon knows his daughter is Batgirl. Uh, did you get any ideas from this issue, or did you just kind of go off on your own that you wanted him to have suspicions? 
I think, I think, I think that changes, you know, with every, you know, probably every other decade, really. Yeah, that is true. I, I, I don't with think the we crises, went into it saying yeah. that, you know, hey, we're going to make, you know, if we had to go through and footnote, you know, every aspect of the story, I don't think we would have acknowledged Detective 417 and <laughs> he knows. Because, you know, some writer, you know, later negated that or confirmed oh, it. Yeah. So, you know, we were, I think we were keeping with the basic framework of the story and the origin, but kind of, you know, forging our own path at the same time, too. Yeah, we, yeah, because you, you can't address all the inconsistencies. Yeah, very true. They were many, especially in the 70s, they just sort of like, quote, whatever the heck they thought of that <laughs> month. Yeah. I know there is an issue where, you know, first she was his daughter and then she wasn't, but then it's later revealed that he, she actually was. It's very confusing. Yeah, well, we, we were telling me. Yeah, nobody could explain that one to me. Nobody, nobody at DC <laughs> could explain that one to me. Yeah, yeah. That yeah, that uh, Bab's real parents died, and he adopted her, and you know, it doesn't make a lot of sense. I think that uh, for us, I think we went into it assuming that he was, she was his biological daughter. Yeah. So if yeah, we I, were I, edited in the time of E. Nelson Bridwell, you know, or Julia Schwartz, that uh, I'm sure that you know any inconsistencies in plot would have been pointed out, and you know, we would have had to work around it. But I, I don't think there are any inconsistencies. I think that. You know, really, we just, as a year one, we're kind of forging new ground. And right. We're, we're setting the canon. We're not trying to necessarily adhere to it all the time. Yeah. And, and, and my, de- my defense, you know, my defense rests in any arguments like this is if you walked up to the average person on the street and said, what is the relationship between Commissioner Gordon and Barbara? They would go, she's his daughter. Yeah. And there's the answer to your question. Most yeah. people think, and that's, you know, why would you want to confuse that issue at all? Yeah. And that's how the 60s TV show series is as well. So, I mean, yeah. Um, Well, we talked about art already in my little show note thing. But, uh, Scott, you did mention kind of a a mistake that happened due to the the language difference, if it was the only mistake. And that sounded like an interesting story, if you would like to share it. I I would love to share it. Okay. It's one of my favorite anecdotes. Okay. I think it happened just by, by happenstance, really. Chuck and I were at D.C. at the same time. And uh, editor Matt Idelson was receiving pages from Marcos uh, from Barcelona. Uh, and uh, we happened to be in Matt's office when Marcos was calling on the phone to confirm the pages had arrived. And we were just chatting it up and talking about, uh, you know, what a great job he was doing and how effusive we were over, you know, the work and the art. And Marcos uh, asked us, he said, I just have one question about the script. What are jams? And I, I think we, or no, slacks, I'm sorry, slacks. And uh, we, we had described Gordon wearing slacks. And I don't know if it's, you know, a function of Chuck's age and my age and, you know, but dress pants, you know, we, we didn't right. say khakis and we didn't say dress pants, we said slacks. And Marcos didn't know what slacks were. So when we explained to him what slacks were, and we said dress pants, you know, you know business suit pants, uh, Marcos, uh, you know, there was a moment of silence on the phone, he said, Oh, don't look at the pages. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so wow. Of course, of course, we had, you know, I, I'm not sure if, you know, Chuck ripped open the box or Matt or me or whatever, but we had to see the pages. And when we opened it up, you see Gordon wearing jams, like, you know, uh, Hawaiian shorts. Oh, wow. And, you know, and spats for, you know, his, to hold his socks up and his gun rig. <laughs> and, uh, he had just oh, assumed gosh. that, uh, you know, there was a... An error in translation where slacks became, you know, really funky Hawaiian shorts. And uh, <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> thankfully it was corrected before going to print, but that just shows you the, the language barrier sometimes. And, and Marco speaks impeccable English. It's just it was an American colloquialism that right. did not translate. And for that brief panel, 
Commissioner Gordon was uh, <laughs> showing a whole other side of himself. So yeah, he was styling. <laughs> he was. If only that could have made and, and, it. And it, it would have been, you know, it wouldn't have been so, you know, it, it was so hilarious because he was wearing spats, like, you know, and the gun rig and everything. So. Right. <laughs> that would have been great had that made it into uh, a trade paperback or something at the very back, kind of like a deleted scene, as it were. But it's that one of my favorite great. stories. For, you know, for Marcos, who's, you know, doing Spider-Man and is a big superstar at Marvel right, now. Right, right. When he called up and said, what are slacks? <laughs> <laughs> so do you guys still have that panel? No, I don't, no, I don't, I don't think anybody saved the art from that. Oh, yeah, I mean, the corrections okay. going on. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, that, that won't make it under the DVD. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, the memories are still there, and that's really all that matters. Sure. Yeah. Well, if you were to ever write a back row year two, uh, just kind of, you know, a fanciful question, what elements or characters would you find uh, necessary to include? Wow. We pitched it. Did you really? Yeah. yeah oh. Uh, I think that, you know, the way, and of course, I don't think it'll ever happen, so I don't, I'm not loath to talk about some, I'm not sure if Chuck is, but uh, the, the idea was that year two was ended with, or, or I think we may have said, you know, it could be titled year two or year zero. It ended with her last case, and the last few pages were, you know, Babs going to the door and opening up oh. and the Joker was there. So it would yeah, tie directly yeah. into Killing Joke. So, but that, the whole thing was we were kind of focusing on, the story would have focused on Babs in her prime, you know, really kicking butt, uh, you know, settling into a life uh, outside of being back or also with uh, her, her one for Congress, which was in you know, the old Detective Comics and right. Batman Family Stories. And, you know, just really enjoying success and kind of making being a superhero and work. And then, you know, it ends with The Killing Joke. And, you know, that would have just tied it on to continuity. But we, I think looking at comic book time, you know, everything's on a 10-year timeline. We figured that Babs was probably Batgirl for about two years before, yeah. you know, the big bullet. Did you have any, I mean, I don't want to keep talking about it if you, if you guys don't want to. Did you have any particular villains in mind? No, I don't think I, it ever got to that stage. Oh, okay. I don't think it ever got to that stage. I think I had, I think I had some thoughts of, of the Riddler, but I don't think we went beyond that. I mean, Did you? I think, I think Catwoman as well, but oh, I don't think yeah, we want much. Yeah, yeah, the kind of putting up against the uh, you know the real established backed villain. Right. Did you think about a Robin year two as well, or was this just kind of a thing that you're thinking for Batgirl? Yeah, I don't think we pitched that. We pitched <laughs> yeah, we other did. year. We did. Yeah. Well, that was that was Jason that. Todd year one. Oh. oh yeah, that's right. That's right. We had that's we had right. uh, we you know after Nightwing year one we thought well you know oh, the right. ones that, that were left to do were Jason Todd year one because we set it up in Nightwing year one where you know at the very right. end Jason Todd shows up and uh, you know it's I, I think again because of, of marketing and, and trying to you know maintain our lock on this you know kind of year one franchise we were we were planning ahead and uh, you know I think there were even talk of and Alfred year one, we had bandied back and forth, but oh, Jason Todd, Jason yeah, Todd had, was, yeah. uh, that, that was an idea we had, we had thrown around. Yeah, I mean, from a, I mean, we were thinking, like, from a marketing standpoint, because each one of these, you know, did well. Right. Uh, you know, okay, why not, why not keep going? Um, you know, go across the entire DCU. I mean, you know, not that long ago, Scott did all those, uh, what were they, two-page origins of, like, everybody? Yeah, you know, yeah, well, and, and Mark Wade did them all for, um, 52. He did all the the heroes, and then oh, I did yeah. all the villains for Countdown. 
And, and, uh, and I thought, you know, we we made such a good team um, uh, on the on the year ones. Just well, just let us go across the DCU and make a bookshelf of these things, which you know is they're the greatest um, starting place for anybody that wants to get into the DCU. You can just pick a character and learn everything about their their first experiences and go from there. Uh, but I don't think anybody saw it the way we did. No, not until a few years ago when there was, you know, Green Arrow Year One yeah. and Metamorpho Year One and, you yeah. know, I think Huntress Year One. I mean, they, they really kind of, you know, went through everybody that they could at the time. Teen Titans Year One, that was one we had talked about also. Yeah, we had talked about that. Because it yeah. seemed like a natural extension coming out of Robin that uh, to go into Teen Titans. And so we, we, we had big plans. Yeah. You know, I kind of laughed at when you said Alfred Year One, but actually that would be, uh, I think, a really moving and intense story. I, I sort of did that uh, to some extent. I did a two-page or two-part uh, Alfred uh, backup in Detective Comics, uh, 807 and 808, with Jeff Parker, who's, um, I guess, doing Thunderbolts now. And uh, it, it sort of explored Alfred's uh, history with MI6. So, you know, that, that was, you know, a way for me to at least get that idea out of my head. <laughs> <laughs> like Chuck, you know, I, I hate to let go of ideas, right? You know, and you know, there's a drawer full of you know pitches and things like that that you know I always come back to and I try to make work somewhere because you know otherwise you know it just sits in the drawer. So yeah. Well, you know, we were going to come to it sooner or later. You know, talking about the the direct to video movie, um, if they did make it, what things do you think absolutely have to be in the film of this story, uh, and what would you look forward to the most? Hmm. I, I well, love to see that the subway, subway sequence. Yeah, yeah, the subway sequence would be awesome. And then the relationship between Babs and Robin, because I yeah. really think that just played off uh, for you know for humor and you know for lack of a better word, cuteness. It, it really right. works. Right. Yeah, I, I can't think of much that I, I. I think the real job would be paring it down into a right. You know, a ninety-minute oh, yeah. story. Yeah. Well, and, and I don't know how much of a problem that would be because we had to use room to do stuff in a story that could be done very quickly in in, in a you know video format. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm surprised at how quickly you know the uh, the motion comic um, runs because I think like each issue yeah. is about you know 30 minutes or 20 minutes, and right. so you know multiply that times nine, and you know it it really does move quickly, and and that's with added moments of you know the score and. <laughs> Special, or sound effects and stuff like that too. So, yeah, I don't know. I think that uh, it's one of the most easily adaptable stories to uh, animation because it has such a, you know, a, an animated style to it, and that's you know, spoken you know with with great esteem. Not, yeah. Uh, no, yeah. I mean, I certainly agree. Um, obviously, because, you know since I had such passion with the petition and writing in and everything. And I felt like, you know, Batman year one, they had produced that. So I thought, okay, well, now's the time uh, to do this. But they just kind of wanted to get away from the female superheroes. And I tried to argue that people would buy Batgirl more than Wonder Woman because she is more relatable, because she's related to the Batman franchise. But I guess we'll see. It's it's in their hands now and God's hands, too. So I guess we'll see if it ever happens. Yeah, I think, well, I think Wonder, Wonder Woman was a poor example. I mean, because yeah. Wonder Woman has failed in so many different areas to, to, to say, well, it failed because it's a female character. Well, you yeah. know, it could have just failed because it's Wonder Woman. Yeah. And nobody's really interested. Uh, right. It's a character past its prime. Batgirl is still, you know, um, you know, 
a character in pop culture that people exactly. recognize and enjoy. So yeah. Yeah, and I don't know if it's relevant now, you know, given the giant DC reboot. Oh, dear, yes. But, uh, you know, there was something said somewhere, and I'm not sure if this is apocryphal or not, but they, uh, the line of thinking was that they wouldn't do a Batgirl Year One before a Batman Year One. Of course, Batman Year One is, you know, almost About ready to, to come be out. released. Yeah. yeah. So if, if Batman Year One is a success, I think that that holds out more chances for us to actually see something like Batgirl really Year One yeah. and Robin Year One. I mean, you know, why not? I mean, they... Uh, I think one of the reasons why the motion comic worked was because it had clean artistic lines and was easily adaptable to that form. And, you know, it's, uh, you know, the story, I think the story holds up. I think they could really do wonders with it. And uh, if they're listening, I think Chuck and I could do wonders with the script. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't give that job to anyone but you, but of course I'm not in charge. So. Well, I wouldn't want anybody else to write it, to be <laughs> yeah. frank. I mean, yeah. I, I, you know, that's, it's one of my favorite stories, and I think it's one of Chuck's favorite stories, and I don't want anybody else monkeying with it. Yeah. Uh, well, that's it that, you know, I have with Batgirl Year One. Do you have any, I guess, concluding thoughts um. on the story? <laughs> I, I, I know that's very vague, but I don't know if there's anything you really want to get off your chest, you know, oh, from it, 2003. No, it's definitely a career highlight. I mean, everything went well and turned out terrific, and people still respond to it. It's still one of those things that... I know if I go to a, a, an appearance, I'm going to sign a bunch of them. Yeah. Uh, you yeah, know, single sure. issues or the or the trade paperback. So, and then you know the motion comic did well. That was that was nice. That a lot of people um, downloaded that. That was cool. Yeah. So yeah, I'd like to see it go to video. And I appreciate your efforts in trying oh. to make that happen. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm the same way. I, I think that it's one of the things that is mentioned to me most often. And uh, you know, around. Uh, Around the time or later, I was writing Ruse, and uh, you know, which had a strong female character, and and Emma Bishop, and you know, I always got questions of you know, what brought me to writing strong female characters, and you know, as a as a male writer, I was like, whoa, I'm embracing my feminine side, you know. <laughs> but but I think that uh, you know the story does speak for itself, and you know, I'm really proud of it, and and I know that I've lobbied uh, in the past for DC doing an absolute edition for it because I think that if anyone has had seen uh, even the art that Marco sent in, I mean, he did thumbnails and pencils and, you know, and then did, uh, you know, sketches and full pencils and just this whole, you know, procedure for every page that there's so much background material. And, yeah. you know, even if we, if Chuck and I went back and mined our emails back and forth, I think there's a lot of behind the scenes stuff that would really make for a great addition, you know, a nice hardcover. That'd be great. Yeah, my trade paperback only has maybe three or four pages of um, some sketchbooks. Uh, yeah, the Spanish, there's a Spanish hardcover. It's just gorgeous. I mean, really? They, they really did it up with, with wow. background material. And then even the trade dress is, is beautiful with a new cover. And, uh, yeah, background uno ano. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> but uh, yeah, they haven't done that yet here. I'll have to check that out, even though I don't speak Spanish. Yeah, you should take a look at it. It is a beautiful, beautiful package. They just did a, a beautiful job like, with a, like a library binding on it. Well, I guess the the final two things I have to say definitely is that, you know, whenever anyone asks me what can I read to get into the Batgirl character, I this is absolutely the first thing that I tell them. And then they write back and say how much they absolutely love it. So I think that definitely points to the greatness uh, that you put into it and, and how wonderful you two are. And um, oh, yeah, and just thank you though. Honestly, it's one of it is my favorite story. I don't even know why I say one of. It is my favorite story, and and I love it so much. And of course, thank you for coming on. 
Sure. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And yeah. uh, I can say that uh, it, it, as a writing experience, it was probably one of the most effortless collaborations that, that I've ever been involved in. I mean, you know, Chuck and I just, I, you know, we just had such a blast writing it. It was, you know, more fun than we should have been allowed to have and get paid for it. <laughs> Don't ever let them know that. Though. Yeah, exactly. Actually, I think they know that. That's why they don't pay us that much. <laughs> well, okay. thanks again so much. It was such a pleasure. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Stella. Well, have right. a wonderful night. You too. Okay, you too. Bye. Bye. While Chuck and Scott were unable to stay on the line and actually answer your listener questions in person, they were very gracious and actually um, prompted me to send them in, and then they wrote back to me. So I know that I'm a poor substitute for the, the, the greats, but I will read your questions and then give the responses. So first up we had Ian. Ian asks, what drew you to Barbara Gordon's character so that you gave her both such a lengthy year one retelling and launched the Birds of Prey series centered around her. Chuck answers, Barbara is such a multi-layered character with such a dramatic history that the draw was as irresistible to Scott and I as it proved to be to readers. There is so much fan love for Babs that it made sense to give her more exposure simply from a marketing standpoint. Jordan Gorfinkel came up with the idea of uniting Dinah and Babs for Birds of Prey. He had to talk me into the title and I had some provisos before I would take it on. I didn't want to do a cheesecake book and I wanted to do straight up superhero adventure, not a half-assed spy book. Gorf was good with all that. We were very surprised by the response of the book since it flew in the face of the conventional wisdom that for a book starring females, to sell it had to be something close to costumed porn. TNR105 asks, My question is that out of Batgirl Year One, Robin Year One, and Nightwing Year One, which was the most fun to write? Also, kudos to them and Nightwing Year One for making the flared collar costume look badass and model it after the flying Grayson's costume. Chuck says, Batgirl, hands down. I think Scott would agree. We had fun on all three, but that's the one that really clicked. Scott also says, same for me. Batgirl Year One just came together on so many levels. I'm proud of all, but this one is near and dear. Next up is Donovan, uh, Morgan Grant, a.k.a. Donamark, Mrs. Dixon and Beatty. Are there any writer's runs on a book that you previously worked on that you really enjoy? If so, what did you like about them? Chuck, I don't ever follow titles once I've worked on them. It's kind of like seeing your kids go off with another dad. And then Scott says, I can think of one. I'm really happy that Phil Hester extended the lives of the Gen 14 characters I created in Gen 13. Michael Bailey, to Chuck regarding his Robin run. You seem to have a good handle on how to write young characters. What do you think is the secret to writing believable young characters? Also, thanks for your work on Detective and Robin, especially around 1995. It got me through some tough times. Chuck answers, the first thing when writing a young character is not to try and be hip. Don't pander. Don't use what you think is current slang because you heard it on TV. Just take your mind back to high school and have your characters react as you might have. And finally, we have my good friend Zias. My submission may fail on the grounds of not being quick and to the point. However, here goes. I think that without exception, everyone I know that's read Batgirl Year One agrees that it's special. Great writing and fantastic art combining to tell a touching, engaging, and thrilling story. So my question, I'm getting to it, is was there a point during the creative process when the two gentlemen thought to themselves or even said to one another that they sensed that what they were working on was going to be really, really special? 
Chuck answers, there was certainly a sense that it was coming together nicely, and both Scott and I appreciated the rare opportunity we were given to explore the development of such an iconic character. I really think we were into our own comics geek joy and not really thinking of the reaction on the other end. But when we first saw Marcos's first pages, we realized this was one special project. And then Scott finishes up. I think Chuck hit the nail on the head. I was blown away every time we saw art pages. Uh, because it was so close to this interview, I also added some thoughts about this new DC movement, you know, the new costume, new origins, and then Batgirl being restarted at number one, obviously with Babs' Batgirl, and just wanted to get their ideas on that. Chuck says, I wish them only the best. A lot of creators are counting on this to work. But I see some warning bells going off already. It's a reboot, but I think they're building in some of DC's historic missteps. But they had to do something. And Steph has always been an odd character in the way DC has treated her as spoiler. She's the most famous DC personality who's never ha had even a miniseries of her own or an action figure. Uh, I did, yeah, I forgot to say that. I did um, also kind of put in there, you know, poor, poor Steph is no longer going to be Batgirl. Uh, hopefully, Chuck, w we should try to get on that and send Chuck a... Um, an action figure of Steph as Batgirl, but I understand that he means, of course, his spoiler. Uh, poor Steph there. And then Scott finishes up, Creatively, I'm jealous as hell that Gail Simone, a mutual friend, gets to write Babs. But Gail has been effusive for years over her appreciation for Batgirl Year One, so I think the book's in good hands. That and continuity is a slippery slope. Don't ever count out a character from coming back someday, some way. Okay, well, that is all I have for this interview. <sighs> I was certainly on cloud nine, definitely talking to these these great legends, these great men, and they were so kind, and it, and it was just really fun to, to chat with them. And, and you can tell that uh, they were having fun talking with each other, kind of joking and and uh, thinking thinking about the things that happened, in, you know, in 2003 and when they were writing it. Uh, so thank you again, sirs, for coming on this this modest podcast. And thank all of you for writing in and asking a question. Be sure to sign that petition, right? We really want Batgirl Year One to go into production. And, you know, Batman Year One is coming out soon. If that sells well, maybe Batgirl is on the way. Who knows? And with Babs coming back as Batgirl, this does seem like it is the perfect time. So definitely go to www.gopetition.com slash petition slash Batgirl dash year dash one dot HTML. And really support Batgirl Year One in any way that you know how, buying trade paperbacks, going on eBay, and maybe looking for uh, single issues. Um, just support it and read it. It really is the one thing that I recommend, and, and everyone that I talk to that I recommend it to, that they they enjoy it and they love it. So thanks again to Mile High Comics for sponsoring Batgirl to Oracle. Stay tuned uh, just a little bit after after the outro for um, a funny little bit. I don't know if you can call it a blooper, but as Scott and Chuck know, it, it was kind of... Um, a whirlwind of activity to try to get us together and um it it was fun when they came on and there was just just this little joke at the beginning that I thought I would share so thanks for listening thanks again to Mr. Beatty and Dixon for coming on and until next time fly on babs lovers <laughs> <laughs> 
just plain Barbara Gordon, masquerading for a lark as she rides into the night on her special Batgirl cycle. Who knows? Is the dynamic duo destined to become the triumphant trio? Only time will tell us more about this dazzling dare doll. I love a happy ending, don't you? Scott? Yes. This is Stella. Uh, hi, Stella. Hold on one second, Stella. Okay. It should be okay for a little bit. Uh, hi, I'm here. Okay. Now the, the, the key is, will I be able to get Chuck on the phone? <laughs> <laughs> well, good luck. Hi, Chuck. Hey. Oh, this is wonderful. Okay. <laughs> yes. Oh, sorry, guys. I got to go. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> you have nothing to offer anyway. <laughs> oh, dear. There's not enough water in the nuclear reactor. And, uh, oh, man. Everyone, yeah, run for You can never lives. put too much water in a nuclear reactor. Oh, dear.